Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Zora Neale Hurston traveled to Haiti and Jamaica in the 1930s to study and practice the religion of voodoo. What amazed me, her engagement. When I say engagement, it's not somebody really sitting there, somebody translating for her. She, she was a witness. We'll discuss William Augustus Bowles, who tried to unite Native Americans against European colonial oppression. His idea was to unite the tribes of the southeastern United States to fight against not only the uh, encroaching Spanish and French powers, but also the newly formed American frontiersmen who were staking claim to a number of these Indian lands. And we'll talk about the start of the space shuttle program. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Sixteen marks the 125th anniversary of the birth of Florida writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston. A conference called Tracing the Caribbean Footprints of Zora Neale Hurston, a 125th birthday commemorative cruise, was held aboard the cruise ship Freedom of the Seas with private tours in Haiti and Jamaica. The conference cruise was sponsored by the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community. That organization is dedicated to the preservation of the oldest incorporated African-American municipality in the United States and the memory of its most famous resident, Zora Neale Hurston. Hurston visited Haiti in 1936, where she immersed herself in the local culture, including the practice and documentation of the religion of voodoo. She took a seven-week break from her anthropological work to write her most famous novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. In 1937, Hurston traveled to Jamaica, where she continued her collection of folklore and folk songs and the documentation of Caribbean lifeways. Another result of Hurston's travels in the Caribbean was perhaps her most dramatic nonfiction work, Tell My Horse, Voodoo and Life in Haiti and Jamaica. In the book, Hurston describes the ancient African religion of voodoo, documenting its many gods, rituals, and songs of worship. Carl Francois emigrated from Haiti in 1983 and has taught engineering at the University of Central Florida. Zora, uh, again, was not um, a tourist with camera taking pictures. She was part of what she was describing. For her to know the um, 
alpha and the omegas of the voodoo religion. I could see in she knows songs, she knows hymns um, that there was they would sing the uh, position of each person in that uh, hierarchy of the voodoo gods and worshippers. She knows exactly the name of them. Hurston did more than document the voodoo religion. She immersed herself in the rituals and practices of the belief system. Marie-José Francois is a medical doctor who emigrated from Haiti with her husband and is president of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community. What amazed me, her engagement. When I say engagement, it's not somebody really sitting there, somebody translating for her. She, she was a witness. What she put, she saw stuff to put it down on paper. To tell the story, you have to live the story. And I, I believe there is some part she did not put. I believe that. Because when she described the different level in the voodoo, the different rank, the difference between the, 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 the female voodoo priest, which is the member, talking about the Ugar, talking about the Onsi, talking about the different laws, the, the goddess, and, and, and what the signification of everything, and before they start a ceremony, she was really part of it. Much of voodoo focuses on the medicinal properties of herbs and plants that can be used to both help and to harm people. Hurston spends a chapter of Tell My Horse documenting the creation of zombies. She describes the use of potions to make a person appear to be dead, erasing their personality. The person becomes the living dead, easily manipulated and controlled. There are two parts in the voodoo. There's the voodoo that has, a, that knows the a, a medicinal properties yes. of plants and it's to, for the good of the people. And the, those gods too are the good ones, okay? And uh, you, you have a, uh, some of those uh, doctors and uh, on the female side, mambos or barkers, ungans on the uh, right, uh, right side who do do that to treat people, you know? But they, they, there is also this image of of those uh, bokos, ungans, to be to be to be greedy, and basically to just sip your money. Okay, some may not even have any kind of powers. To, but they would, you know, they would tell you what you want to hear, and uh, get your, all of your money. But there is also this, 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 these bad ones that would go and try to create the zombies or kill and poison somebody. They would go to them mm -hmm. to basically so they put poisons. Uh, the the process would be if they have a maid or somebody that they know they put the poison in the soup or in the food and kill, you know. Uh, it's like um, in voodoo, it's like you have both hands. One hand to cure, one hand to kill. It's like the knife of the pharmacist. You can overdose, 
or give the right dose. That's why when you look at Vodou, people have to be very careful. We have good, good stuff in Vodou. Like we talk about the medicinal, the plants, that's the, the good part. Now, if you go, instead of having the good part, somebody go to the, to the Wuga and ask to hurt somebody. Okay, so now somebody you have the power to do good. Now you're, you're going to use that one to do something bad. This is not voodoo. It's something different. This is evil. Because voodoo has some good, good spirit coming to guide you, to help you, to protect you. A lot of people, voodoo is like a protector in your family. Like good spirit. Now how can you use that good spirit to do something bad? So that's when you're not in invoking the good one, you're invoking the bad one. So me, I like to look at Voodoo as two parts, the good and the bad. And if we focus mostly on the good part of Voodoo, a lot can be done. Like the, if you look at botanic, the, the plants and all of that, somebody who knows about folklore, they will tell you, okay, you are sick, take that tea, take that one. Yeah, so that's the good part of Voodoo. Voodoo came to the Caribbean when Africans were brought there by Europeans as slave labor. By 1804, people of African descent took control of Haiti from their oppressors, establishing the oldest black republic outside of Africa. The Voodoo religion became an important part of the Haitian identity. Carl Francois. The Voodoo, again, in the context of a, uh, the, the uprising in Haiti played a significant role because it was a, a crying, a connecting a, a link for all those people. They say, okay, we're under colonization. Okay, we have this religion here, but this is not us. Okay, so voodoo and also Creole became another the language that the planters hated because they could not understand, understand what they were talking about. As Haitians and other people of African descent made their way to Florida, some of them brought their ancient religious beliefs with them. Stetson Kennedy was Zora Neale Hurston's supervisor when she worked for the Works Progress Administration's Florida Writers Project. In his 1942 book, Palmetto Country, Kennedy documented the practice of voodoo in Key West, Miami, Jacksonville, and Tallahassee. Everywhere where you had, let's say, um, populations coming from the west coast of Africa, whether they're in Brazil, they have Macumba, Okay, in Cuba they have Centuria, and even even in the Dominican Republic and in uh, Puerto Rico, yeah. anywhere you have any kind of uh, a, uh, I would say Negro population that came from Africa, they have these practices. Carl Francois and Marie Jose Francois emigrated to Florida from Haiti in 1983. Marie-Francois is president of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community and both participated in the conference Tracing the Caribbean Footprints of Zora Neale Hurston, a 125th birthday commemorative cruise.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events like the Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium, read our Florida Frontiers blog, watch original video, and much more. While you're there, become a member of the Florida Historical Society to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Then your smiles, my love. For united we stand, divided we fall. And if our back should ever be against the wall, we'll be together, together, you and I. William Augustus Bowles tried to unite Native Americans against European colonial oppression. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, William Augustus Bowles was really a fascinating character from Florida history. That's right. Bowles, I would argue, is one of the most colorful figures in Florida history, which is saying a lot because Florida is sprinkled with uh, wonderfully interesting and eccentric characters. But Bowles' story really starts outside of Florida. He was born in western Maryland in 1763 or 1764. Uh, His father was English, and at the outset of the American Revolution, his family sided with the Loyalists. So young William joined a Loyalist British regiment, uh, made his way to New York, and was stationed with the Maryland Loyalists, who uh, in 1777 were stationed down in Pensacola. So he traveled from Western Maryland, where he kind of learned how to live off the land and, and was acquainted with some of the native peoples in that area, made his way to Pensacola. Well, William was not accustomed to military life. Uh, he gained a commission, was actually a, a young officer in the Loyalist Regiment, but was soon relieved of his command for dereliction of duty and decided to live with the Creek Indians, who he met while stationed in Pensacola. So he spent the next few years uh, in and out of Pensacola and living amongst the lower uh, Creek tribe and Seminole Indians of the western Florida wilds. Uh, Now, in 1781, the British garrison was attacked by Bernardo del Galvez, uh, the Spanish commander who laid siege to the city of Pensacola. Now, William was still uh, loyal to the British crown, even though he was uh, relieved of his command, and he led a group of Creek Indian warriors against the Spanish, and he was actually given his command back in the British army. Well, the Spanish defeated the British, and as part of their capitulation agreement, William was sent back to New York, and he spent the rest of the American Revolution there. After the Revolution, uh, he had a choice. He could either go to Nova Scotia or to the Bahamas. Well, William had married a Creek Indian woman, so he decided to head to the Bahamas, where he would at least be closer to Florida. And he spent a number of years in the Bahamas and also in Florida. It was actually during this time period that he first got the idea of creating 
a separate state known as the state of Muscogee, comprised of Creek, Seminole, Choctaw, and Cherokee Indians. His idea was to unite the tribes of the southeastern United States to fight against not only the uh, encroaching Spanish and French powers, but also the newly formed American frontiersmen who were staking claim to a number of these Indian lands. Now, at this time in colonial Florida history, at least, uh, whoever controlled trade really controlled the colonies. So uh, the Spanish had allowed a British company known as Panton Leslie and Company to continue their Indian trade within the Spanish colonies of East and West Florida. William Augustus Bowles was vehemently against this company. Uh, so living in the Bahamas, he actually traveled to London at one point and gained some financial backing. He was able to uh, raise a small army and attacked one of these trading posts that was owned by William Panton Leslie and Company. Uh, he was soon driven out by the Spanish. But the Spanish at this point knew who he was. They were on his radar, and they uh, laid a price on his head. So he again lived out the, the next decade or so in and out of the wilds. But eventually the Spanish caught up with him. And this is where the, the story really gets interesting. He was captured by the Spanish. He was sent to Spain, and they, they wanted to send him as far away from Florida as possible. So they decided on the Philippines. They put him on a prisoner transport and sent him all the way to the Philippines. But because of his somewhat harsh demeanor, the folks who were uh, running the prison in the Philippines decided they couldn't even handle him anymore. So they sent him back to Spain. But on his way to Spain, the ship was forced to go ashore in the western part of Africa. And it was there that he escaped from the the Spanish ship made his way to a British colonial outpost, and then from there made his way back to London. Then from London, again, was able to find financial backers, came back to the Bahamas, assembled another small army, and then made it back to Florida. And at this time, this is about 1799-1800, he again took over a Panton Leslie and Company trading post and also took over the Spanish fort of St. Mark's. Now, eventually, the Spanish did catch up with him, and they drove him out, and he again fled into the wilderness. Well, you have in your archive here two very contrasting views of this same person. Yeah, that's right. Now, William Augustus Bowles, depending on uh, the account, at least, that you look at, you'll see uh, very different views of who this person was. Now, this first document we're looking at, this is actually a collection of biographies, and it was published in 1801. It was part of a, a book entitled Public Characters of 1801-1802. Now, these biographies consist of a lot of British uh, royalty, doctors, uh, scientists, people like that. And right in the middle of the book is General William Augustus Bowles. Uh, now, this excerpt that I'll read here was taken from a 1791 biography that was uh, written by one of um, William Augustus Bowles's compatriots during the Siege of Pensacola. Uh, he was a captain in the uh, British military, so he actually lived with uh, William Augustus Bowles when he was in and around Pensacola during the American Revolution. And he says here, quote, In stature, Mr. Bowles commands our attention from his height, and the conformation of his limbs is such as that of a gladiator in statute, denoting the combined qualities of strength and activity. Intrepid and enterprising, his motions, the effects of the deliberate reflection, are sudden as lightning and less suspected. To these talents of a warrior, he unites accomplishments, which not only excite in our minds the highest pitch of admiration, but even approach to the marvelous." Unquote. Uh, so quite flattering, I guess you could say. But I want to turn again to another document. Now, this is part of the papers of the Panton and Leslie Company. This is written, it's a deposition written by Hugh Ferguson. Now, Ferguson was one of these people who was wooed by the idea of William Augustus Bowles. Now, he met Bowles in 1799 in Jamaica and decided to go with him back to Florida to set up the state of Muscogee. Well, Bowles had told Ferguson that the state already existed and there was this functioning government and that Ferguson would work as a clerk, uh, a tax collector, essentially. And he thought, well, that's better than the job I have here. 
Jamaica. So he headed into the interior with bulls, but was soon uh, disenfranchised. First of all, they're shipwrecked, and they lost most of their supplies. And he says here, quote, I had an opportunity of conversing often with bulls, but found him uh, fell short, at least, in society of the great reputation he enjoyed. Now, he uh, goes on to talk about his experience, how they lost all their supplies. The Spanish, of course, attacked them at St. Mark's, drove them into the wilderness. Ferguson spent almost a week in the wilderness. He was starving by the time he found uh, a Panton and Leslie company trading ship, made his way back to Pensacola. And at the end of this deposition, he writes, quote, I shall endeavor to forget my adventure in the Creek Nation and condemn to eternal oblivion a recollection of the scoundrel who deceived me, unquote. Bull certainly was a colorful character. What eventually happened to him? Well, the Spanish finally did catch up with him. In fact, he was turned in by a rival clan uh, of the Creek Indians, and they brought him to the Spanish. The Spanish imprisoned him at the castle in Havana, Cuba, Moro Castle. Uh, he unfortunately died there of uh, disease and complications from what we believe was uh, forced starvation. Uh, so he died there in 1803. But the legend of Bowles is what's really important. You know, he accomplished all of these incredible things, especially in the late 18th and early 19th century. The fact that someone like that had traveled uh, so far and was able to use his cunning and guile to get out of all of these difficult situations. Now, his motivations, whether they were self-serving or uh, were more holistic in nature, and if he really wanted to combine and and create this kind of pan-Indian movement, uh, we're not really sure. It's probably a combination of both, but uh, nonetheless, he he still stands as, uh, again, one of the most colorful and interesting figures in Florida history. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Every manned American mission into space has originated from Florida. First, there was the Apollo program and then the space shuttle program. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more about the first space shuttle. And then there's this lull of NASA trying to figure out how to define itself. And it does redefine itself as uh, instead of this really political body that's fighting an ideological war with the Soviet Union, it becomes what Eisenhower had wanted it to be uh, when he founded the organization back in 1958 as a scientific organization. And that's really how NASA redefined itself uh, throughout the 1970s. That was Dr. Amy Foster, author of Integrating Women into the Astronaut Corps. She spoke to me about the first space shuttle flight in April of 1981. Dr. Foster told me the problems facing NASA in the 1970s. But so much about NASA changed over those years. Um, After the end of the Apollo program, NASA kind of struggled with, with its identity. Public interest had faded. Um, Public interest had actually been fading in the 60s, given the United States was dealing with Vietnam and the civil rights movement, and now the beginning of the women's rights movement. The American public felt like people on Earth had bigger problems, and that's what we needed to focus our attention on than putting people in space and putting men on the moon. So really after Apollo 11 landed and we officially win the space race, The American public basically says we don't see the need for continuing space exploration at all. The first project to change the direction of NASA in the 1970s was Skylab. 
after the end of the Apollo program, NASA flew Skylab, which was actually a reworking of some old Apollo components that were sort of cobbled together. NASA is, is pushing more and more towards science, and that's really what Skylab was about. We had three missions aboard Skylab. It was meant to be a temporary space station. Um, it was not equipped with retro rockets to actually keep it in orbit. So that's why it fell out of the sky. It was, NASA intended that. But Skylab was really about redefining that scientific mission that the shuttle would get to take over. Orlando's native son, astronaut John W. Young, was on this first mission. He was selected for the Gemini program. So he is the only astronaut to have flown on Gemini, on Apollo, and on the shuttle. He chose to retire from the astronaut corps after the launch of the very first shuttle flight. We call that STS-1, uh, or Space Transportation System Flight Number 1. Um, John Young and Bob Crippen were the crew. It was so simply a two-man crew. It's, uh, the first four flights all had a two-person crew um, because it was those four flights that were considered the test flights. After the fourth flight, the shuttle was deemed operational and the the crew size expanded and the the time spent on orbit switched dramatically from testing the vehicle to expanding our understanding of space science because that's really what the mission of the shuttle was was ideally down the road to build a space station which those crews did but largely to practice science um, so what John Young and Bob Crippen did on that very first flight, which in itself was significant, was, was testing that vehicle out for the very first time. They flew Columbia. It was not a long flight. It was just a couple of days. Get it up there, put it through some uh, quick tests, and, and bring it back down safely. Although this first shuttle mission did not bring to the fore any scientific breakthroughs, as subsequent missions would, Dr. Foster tells us why we need to be in awe of the crew of the first shuttle flight. The shuttle can't be flown by wire. It has to be flown by humans. And so the only way to test this thing was to put the stack together and put people on board. Uh, so the fact that all those parts worked when they were supposed to and that that crew came back alive is actually pretty extraordinary. It's not something that NASA wants to play up because it was a risky business. One of the things about the shuttle that got it approved from a money standpoint in the 1970s was the shuttle was meant to provide routine flight. That's how they sold it to Congress. That's how they sold it to President Nixon, who backed it in 1972. So announcing that this particular flight was as risky as it was goes against how NASA was really marketing the shuttle. I would say the, the courage that those two men had to volunteer to be the first puts them pretty high in my book in terms of respect for, for the risks they took. That was Dr. Amy Foster, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen to us online at myfloridahistory.org or as a podcast. Join the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Don't miss our television series version of Florida Frontiers, which is airing on PBS affiliates all over the state. Check myfloridahistory.org for upcoming air dates. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.